Uh, let's take our Bibles this morning and you turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter number 1. Acts, chapter number 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1 and uh, work our way down to verse number 11. As I was pre- preparing for the first message, I uh, was working on the introduction. And I found that the introduction uh, needed to be, uh, was about 10 pages. And I thought, well, now my outline is starting, so I'm just going to preach the introduction uh, this morning. Uh, But I want us to read in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and down to verse number 11. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to follow along here as we read. Acts chapter number 1, verse 1, the Bible says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with, with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven." I want to draw your attention to the very first verse as really this book or this letter to Theophilus is introduced. Notice in verse 1, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, notice the next words, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. I want to preach this morning by way of introduction to the book of Acts, a message that I've entitled, All That Jesus Began. All that Jesus began. Now as we come to the book of Acts, we ask ourselves a number of questions. I think those are important questions to ask ourselves because when we think about the book of Acts, we think about the first century church. We go back to the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 16, 18 when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in Acts, we see that laid out for us, that those first churches and how they grew and how they expanded and how they multiplied themselves. And by the time you read the epistle to the Romans, you find that the church at Rome, their faith was spoken of throughout the world. As a matter of fact, most early church historians believe that the gospel message of the apostles went around the world. And that the entire world, by the close of the second century, 
had heard the gospel message. Now as we think about the book of Acts, then we ask ourselves this question, what is the church? What is Christianity? What is the message of the church? What is the work of the church? As a matter of fact, when you read uh, Acts chapter number 13, and you find the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, uh, Saul and Barnabas, for the work whereunto I have called them. God never talks about the work specifically, but they understood what the work was. And we find the work in Acts chapter 13 and 14 clearly laid out for us. And ultimately, as we read through these pages, we ask one more question, and that is this. What has happened to New Testament Christianity? I believe that's the question we have to ask ourselves as we think about, generally speaking, Christendom. All the churches that fall under this umbrella of Christendom, we ask ourselves, if we read through the book of Acts, and we examine the first century church, and we look all around us today and think about the state and the condition of churches, we have to ask ourselves this question, and we will throughout the book, what has happened to New Testament Christianity? You know, some would argue that Christianity has been tried. It's been over 2,000 years now, and it hasn't seemed to work. Look at the world. But I would emphatically say that New Testament Christianity has not been tried to the degree that we think it has. As a matter of fact, G.K. Chesterton said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And I think ultimately that is the great problem that we examine first uh, New Testament Christianity and examine the state condition of churches today, we find that Christianity has not been tried. It's just simply been found difficult. And therefore, people are not truly engaging in New Testament Christianity. Now, this is clearly evident in the fact that churches have so easily forsaken biblical doctrine and also embraced a worldly philosophy. In an article written in 2005, a report was published entitled, Facts on Growth. This report gave the result of a religious survey in America that was sponsored by a group called the Cooperative Congregational Studies Partnership. In this study, this group randomly sampled 3,000 congregations and accumulated data from over 884 congregations of different faiths in the United States. They surveyed churches, parishes, synagogues, temples, and mosques. They, uh, the stated purpose of this survey was this, to track changes in U.S. congregations and to plump the dynamics of selected congregational practices and challenges. Their goal was to find out what religious organizations were doing to promote growth in their congregations. This study also made suggestions on what could be done to promote growth. Now, they encouraged churches, number one, to locate their buildings in newer suburbs, and also not to emphasize theology. Instead of a strong doctrinal statement, churches were encouraged to have a mission statement. 
Uh, the study made the following conclusions. Target young people because aged congregations don't grow. They went on to say target females because congregations with more females grow. Incorporate a contemporary worship style in order to exercise or to experience substantial growth. A congregation must not be sensed as being a close-knit family. Congregation must be willing to change in order to grow. And finally, they say that congregations with drum sets, percussion instruments, and electric guitars that play contemporary music grow. Now, it is sad to see that a majority of churches have followed this pragmatic philosophy. And that is what it is. It is a pragmatic philosophy. Pragmatism is the approach that says, if it works, it must be right. Uh, if it doesn't seem to work, then it must be wrong. And so many churches have given themselves over to this pragmatic philosophy that says, look, we are not interested in what God's Word says. All we are interested is in growth. All we are interested is in result, and we can put aside the glory of God. We can put aside uh, the instruction of God's Word, because by, those, by the way, those things kind of stunt the growth of churches. And so therefore, we have a new philosophy and a new approach. As we come, however, to the book of Acts, we understand that our instruction on how to run our churches does not come from a survey or from a church manual or from a, from a church growth conference. Our instructions come from the Word of God. As a matter of fact, when you read Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the Bible tells us that those that received the Word were baptized, and the Bible says they were added to the church. And what did they do? The Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. There's something that Jesus Christ started in the Gospels, we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that was continued in the book of Acts. And that is exactly what the book of Acts is about. It is about what was continued. We must stop to think that these apostles, there were men that kind of gathered together and thought to themselves, okay, how can we kind of adapt ourselves to this first century culture? How can we change the things that Jesus Christ said and adapt it to our time now? They did not do that. They took the teaching of Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the accusations of Peter was, uh, these are unlearned and ignorant men, but we take notice they have been with Jesus. There's something about what they said, about what they did, that, re that pointed people to Jesus Christ. You see, the book of Acts is a wonderful account of the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ. I use the word continuing purposefully in light of what our Lord said in Matthew 16, 18. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the words of Jesus Christ. So when we come to the book of Acts, the, uh, this was a meaningful promise from the Lord and it causes us to declare that this book is not the Acts of the Apostles. As much as it is the continuing acts of Jesus Christ. Because it is Jesus Christ that said, I will build my church. He didn't look at Peter and say, you will build my church. He said, I will build my church. And what we read in the book of Acts is, is exactly that. Jesus Christ building His church. 
And so we pause for just a moment and ask ourselves this question. Are we interested in being part of a church that we are building? Or are we interested in the church that Jesus Christ is building? And so as we come to uh, this uh, question, I take the phrase from verse number 1 that says, All that Jesus began. In the opening two verses, in verse 1 and 2 of Acts chapter number 1, we find three points commanding our attention upon this great book. Three things this book demands of us as we consider the record of the book of Acts. And I want to preach on those three demands this morning. First of all, this book demands the pondering of the saints. Now I want you to notice as we come to the opening words, the Bible tells us this here, the former treaties have I made, notice the next two words, O Theophilus. O Theophilus. Notice the expression here, O Theophilus. Now it seems to me uh, that we come to this, these words. As a matter of fact, as I uh, began studying this week over the last two weeks, I was looking, uh, nobody really said anything about that word, O Theophilus. But as a matter of fact, when you find a pattern used in Scripture, it is quite significant. We see the name Theophilus, by the way, mentioned in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. If you go with me to Luke chapter number 1, we find Theophilus here mentioned in the very first chapter. Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke was written to a specific man, Theophilus, and also the book of Acts in the same manner was written to the same man, Theophilus. Now notice in Luke chapter number 1, the first time we see this man, in verse number 1, the Bible says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most assuredly believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order... Most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And so we find that Theophilus here is a man that has already been instructed. Uh, but the Gospel of Luke is written to him, and we know it's written to all, but specifically to him, and also the book of Acts is written specifically uh, to uh, this man, Theophilus. But here, as he, we see a transition between the Gospel of Luke and then the uh, book of Acts, and here as we come and open the book of Acts, the appeal of Luke to Theophilus is, O Theophilus! Although we don't know much about this man... I am predominantly taken by the word O. Oh. This is a primary interjection which signifies a note of exclamation. Uh, this word O oh, communicates a deep emotion. We find some examples in the New Testament. For example, in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, that's the last time that Luke himself used this expression. If you go with me to Luke chapter number 24, I want you to notice here how he used this word O oh, in Luke chapter 24. And if you go with me to verse number 25, notice here Jesus Christ is on the road to Emmaus with two disciples who are basically doubting Messiah and who Jesus Christ was. And notice what Jesus says unto them in verse 25 of Luke 24. Then he said unto them, O fools, there it is, 
O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see here, he is uh, uh, so taken by those two disciples who are basically saying, well, we have thought that he was the one who was supposed to restore the kingdom. And Jesus Christ basically looks at those two disciples and he says, O fools! It's a note of exclamation. Uh, Paul also uses the word oh. Uh, one example is found in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. He said this, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? You see, it is a note of exclamation. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10, Paul also uses the expression as he writes to Timothy and he says this, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. And so we find this again note of exclamation uh, from Luke as he writes to Theophilus. He communicates here a deep emotion. Uh, in effect, Luke is basically saying this, O Theophilus, you must receive this treatise as you receive the first one. They go together and must not be separated. As a matter of fact, uh, this account in Acts is a continuation of the first one and you must not neglect the, the first as well as the second. There are many... And so we find here, he goes on to say, this is vitally important for you to receive a proper understanding concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. You see, there are many causes to be involved in, in our world today. But there is no cause like the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many problems to solve that people give their lives to. But there is no cause that will solve the problems that every man has as the gospel will. You see, this book of Acts demands the prompting of the saints, or could we say, the pondering of the saints, something that we must come together in this place and we must consider. There must be an awakening to New Testament Christianity. You see, Paul on two occasions sought to prompt the local church believers to awake. In Romans chapter number 13, verse 1, you remember what he said, he says, And thou knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10 through 16, Paul writes to the church to believers at Ephesus, and he says, Awake thou out of sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And so I believe that as Luke writes to Theophilus, as all Theophilus, it is an appeal to Theophilus. It is an emotional appeal for him to listen and to pay attention and to be, uh, to be prompted to examine this book. You see, as we end the Gospel section of the New Testament and we come across to the book of Acts that records the life and the work of the first century churches, we must hear the appeal of Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit of God who cries out, O Theophilus! You see, we cannot look at this book simply as an account of history. But we consider this book and ponder this account, this awakening account for us as the people of God. And we must so desire to be first century Christianity 
and not 21st century Christianity. So we see that first of all, this book demands the pondering of the saints, but secondly, we find that this book demands the preeminence of the Savior. In verse number 1, as write, uh, Luke writes, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, notice here the next words, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So here we find that uh, Luke is referring to his gospel that he wrote to, to, to Theophilus, and he says that that gospel was what Jesus began. And now I'm continuing and writing you this uh, second uh, book. And so immediately in the first, in the very first verse, we understand something that is foundational about this book. And by the way, that is foundational about Christianity. And it is this, that Christianity is about Jesus Christ. Christianity is about a person. You see, Christianity is not about a system of religion. It is not about a set of rules and regulation imposed upon a group of people. This has been the great misunderstanding of Christianity from the onlookers and the casual attenders alike. Please take special notice what Jesus said to His disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Notice here in the first chapter, and we'll examine that next week, He said this, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto... What's the next word? Me. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. You see, they were to be witnesses unto Christ. The command was for the disciples to preach Jesus Christ. It was not just to preach and to teach the teaching of Jesus Christ, but to preach Christ. And that is fundamental to Christianity. You see, when we talk about preaching, what we're preaching is we're preaching Jesus Christ. After His resurrection, Jesus Christ spent time with His disciples explaining to them what the Scriptures were all about. As we saw just a moment ago, two of the disciples of Christ were speaking to each other about Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ Himself intervened in their doubt about who He was and their explanation. Notice if you go with me to Luke, back to Luke chapter number 24. Notice in verse number 18, in Luke 24, verse number 18, uh, here the Bible says, And the one of them, that's one of the disciples, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass after, uh, uh, the, after these days? And so understand here, they're talking back and forth, and they're saying, Well, uh, we had believed, and uh, I don't know that this was truly the Messiah because of what happened. And he said unto them, What things? Now obviously he knew what things, because he was in the middle of those things. And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, notice, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Now we ask ourselves, what were these disciples missing? They said here that we had believed he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. But they were missing something. And so Jesus Christ tells them in verse 25 of the same chapter, Then he said to them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe 
all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning, here it is, himself. You see, Christianity and the message of the Christian church is to expound in the Scriptures, to begin at Moses, and to work our way through all the prophets, and in the Psalms, and then to consider what those things are all about. All of it is about Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible. It is a message about Jesus Christ, about a person, and what He came to do. They had seen His deeds. They had heard His teaching. Yes, they missed something about his person and what about what the scriptures had clearly communicated before then in Luke 24 verse 44 as he goes now and meets and appears before the disciples in verse 44 he said unto them these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms here it is concerning me you see the Bible is not about a set of rules that we have to abide by so that one day we might get to heaven. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a message about Jesus Christ who came to earth, who bled and died to pay for our sin debt because we weren't good enough to go to heaven. And so He paid for our sin in a way that we could not for ourselves. And His righteousness, His perfect life, was imputed upon our sinful life. And we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The message of the Bible is the message of Jesus Christ, His person, and what He came to do. You see, the first century church preached Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. Uh, Peter preached Christ. Stephen preached Christ. Paul preached Christ. If you read these preaching, uh, these messages throughout the book of Acts, you will find them doing exactly what Jesus did. They began with Moses. They worked their way through the prophets. And they expounded the Old Testament Scriptures to their listeners, the things concerning Jesus. Every single one of them. As a matter of fact, you don't find one message in the book of Acts preached by one of the apostles or even Stephen that does not reference Old Testament Scriptures. And they're pointing to them that all of that was about a person. You see, that's what the Jews had missed. They had added things to the law. They had added traditions. They had added rituals. And then uh, uh, Jesus Christ comes in and then the apostles, as they understand the Scripture and the Scripture revelation, they understand that the Scripture was never about those rituals. All of those rituals, all of those things about the temple pointed to a person. And that was Jesus Christ. You see, the first message recorded, if you go with me to Acts chapter 2, the first message recorded, preached by the Apostle Peter. Notice if you go with me to verse number 22. Notice here as Peter preaches, now first of all he addresses the fact that they were speaking in tongues and that each person from their different language was hearing the message in their own language at the same time. That was a miracle. And so Peter says, look, they're not drunk. But here's the message I have for you in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Here it is, ready? Jesus of Nazareth. What's the message about? It's about Jesus of Nazareth. He's, he goes on to say, A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, and ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And he goes on to preach about who? Jesus Christ. 
At no point do any of the apostles say, okay, here's 10 rules you have to follow. Here's 10 things you have to do. Here's 20 rituals you have to follow. Here's the things that you have to do. You have to burn incense. You have to light a candle. You have to do this. You have to go this many times. None of that is taken. It's all the preaching was about Jesus Christ. Who he was. What he came to do. And the simple appeal of the apostle Peter is this. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the message. It's about Jesus Christ. You see what is interesting is that there was no system of religion mentioned. No set of rules that men were to follow. These people in Jerusalem were asked to repent and to change their mind about the person of Jesus Christ. As we consider our Lord's incarnation and powerful public ministry, we remember that Jesus began. His public ministry began when He was 30 and lasted for over three years. His ministry was about what He began to do. Notice in Acts chapter 1, the former treatise, have I made, O Theophilus, the former treatise, the Gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus, notice, began both to do and teach. Again, the word began is emphatic. Luke is saying to Theophilus that all that was written in the Gospel is nothing but the beginning. This is the summary of the Gospel of Luke. All that Jesus began both to do and teach. That's the summary of Luke's Gospel. All that Jesus began both to do and teach. That means it's continuing. You see, Jesus Christ is the focus of Luke's Gospel account and He is also the focus of the book of Acts. We must not place undue emphasis upon the Acts of the Apostles as if it was done in their own power. The book of Acts is about the continuing work of Jesus Christ through the local New Testament churches. As we come to Acts chapter 1, we see the ascension of Christ and we, uh, uh, and, uh, we also see this event and we do, we do not look at this event of His ascension as a closing, but rather we should see our Lord's ascension as a continuing. One preacher put it this way, when Jesus Christ ascended, it was not a sunset, it was a sunrise. It was not the end, it was the beginning. Oliver B. Green, as he preached through this uh, book, he said, the Gospel of Luke records the life of Christ in the flesh, while the book of Acts records the life of Christ in the Spirit. You see, from our Lord's own words, He Himself said, I will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ did not leave the work of the church to the apostles, he promised that He would be the one involved in building the church. We are reminded of our Lord's preeminence in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that Jesus Christ is, the Bible says, the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things that takes place within the church, He might have the preeminence. And so we find that this book demands those first two things. It demands the pondering of the saints. It demands the preeminence of the Savior. But thirdly, we find that this book demands the predisposition of the servants. In verse number 2, the Bible says here, as we read with verse 1, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which He was taken up, after that He through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen. I want you to notice the word after in the middle of the verse. 
until the day in which he was taken up. And so something happened between his resurrection and the time when he was taken up. He gave a set of commands. Uh, the Bible says hereafter that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. And we find really in that period five times what we refer to as the Great Commission was given. We also believe that this is a reference to the command of Jesus Christ, which we'll see in just a moment, that he says, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit of God. And they would do that, but in that command, that command is associated with the Great Commission, the command to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. And so therefore we come to this point when he says, after that they had been commanded, and so we come to this book and we're going to read what they were commanded we already see that this book demands the predisposition of servants. Are we willing to humble ourselves as those first century Christians were? And to be used of the Lord. You see, before our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, we are immediately reminded that He had given commandments unto the apostles. These commandments uh, can be summed up in all of the teachings of Jesus Christ, and the apostles would continue to teach. But they are specifically including the last commandments, which are repeated in various ways in each gospel. And once in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, consider the command given to them in Luke chapter 24. Again, we follow the timeline of Luke, and in the close of Luke 24, this is the commandment of Jesus Christ, in verse number 46. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, Then thus it behoove Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. So the commandment is simple, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached. Now notice here, this command given to the apostles is separate from what Jesus began both to do and teach because what Jesus did was he, he died on the cross to pay for the sin debt. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus God hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And we understand that righteousness comes by the faith of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come by the deeds of the law. And that is explicitly clear in the scriptures. But the command is very clear. Now that Jesus did it, now that he rose from the dead, now that he's given you a commandment, this is the commandment that repentance and remission of your sins should be preached in his name. And you're going to begin at Jerusalem. You see, there is something that is to be connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find that the resurrection of Christ is immediately connected to the calling upon the life of the disciples of Christ. Jesus declared the disciples to simply be this, witnesses of these things. Well, we ask ourselves this question, what does a witness do? Well, he witnesses, right? He declares, you've gone into the court of law, and the judge says, all right, uh, we bring someone who has been a witness. And uh, the witness is asked to communicate what? What he's a witness of. What he saw. What he heard. Uh, the facts that he can relay uh, to the judge. And here he says to those apostles, he says, you are witnesses of those things. It would be foolish for someone to say, oh yeah, I'm a witness, but I'm not going to say anything. I, I saw this crime take place. I heard what they said. I saw the action, but I'm going to keep my mouth shut. 
No, those apostles thought to themselves, Jesus Christ doesn't say you must do this. He says, you're witnesses. What does a witness do? He witnesses. He speaks of what he knows to be true. Jesus declared the disciples to be witnesses of these things. As witnesses, they were to preach repentance and remission of sins through Jesus Christ. Our Lord commanded them, therefore, to wait until the baptism of the Spirit. The early church was very simple. Isn't, uh, do you see the simplicity here of the, of the Word of God? Uh, here's what Jesus began to do. This is what He did for the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And after all this happened, Jesus Christ brings their attention. He says, look, you're, you've been slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written, but let me bring you through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the things concerning me. Now you've seen all those things happen before you. You've seen the Scriptures fulfilled before you. You are a witness of those things. And so, therefore, you must go out and be a witness. You see, the early church was very simple. There was no pomp or splendor. No magnificent ceremonies. No costly, elaborate buildings. But the men and women who made up its membership had yielded their hearts to Jesus Christ with, with a complete surrender to the Holy Spirit of God. And so Luke writes, O Theophilus, Read these pages and find, find out what the Lord did through these people uh, uh, after His ascension. Find out how God used a fisherman, uh, the Apostle Peter, to turn the world upside down. See how God used these women over here to uh, prepare the way uh, for the men of God to do the work of God. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, uh, Luke says, O Theophilus, read and read about how these were ignorant and uh, unlearned and ignorant men, and yet the people marveled and they took knowledge these people had been with Jesus. Uh, read Acts chapter 5 verse 38 and find out what the man said. If this be of God, then ye cannot overthrow it. And read about how the men, although they opposed the work of God, they could not overthrow the work of God. Read how the man by the name of Saul who became the Apostle Paul, how he persecuted the church of God, but then he became a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read in Acts chapter 17 verse 6 O Theophilus, that these are the men who've turned the world upside down. Oh Theophilus, would you read? Do you see how Jesus Christ changed the life of the persecutor to become a preacher and the great apostle of the Gentiles? Oh Theophilus, read how the churches understood their responsibility to fulfill the work of the Lord and how they proceeded to do it. Oh Theophilus, submit yourself to the prompting of the Lord concerning this great work. See how Jesus Christ is building His church and is found to be the preeminent one. Oh Theophilus, observe the lives of these countless people who have predisposed themselves as the servants of God for His great work. All that Jesus began to do, it is not done. It is continuing. And man cannot stop it. Because it is the work of God. And so I believe before we come to this book, and we read about what all that Jesus began this book then demands three things of us. The pondering of the saints, that's for us. We must consider this book in its fullness and ask ourselves this question. Are we New Testament Christianity? The second thing it demands is the preeminence of the Savior. If Jesus Christ is preeminent, you know what that means? I mean, there's a group of people who are going to come 
under the headship of Jesus Christ and who are going to say, whatever Jesus Christ said, that's what we're going to do. He's redeemed us. He's saved us. We have the privilege to be part, to identify as the people of God in this world. And Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so we submit to him. We're not going to try to adapt Christianity to 21st century Christianity. All we're seeking to do is to make Jesus Christ preeminent. He is our leader. He is a command, our commander. And he is the one we follow. Not the philosophies of the world. And finally, this book demands the predispositions of servants. Yes, Jesus began his work, and it is a great work. And he is the one that is to be preeminent in the church. But you know that God desires to use people to accomplish his work. And so all that is needed, in essence, because God has already done everything, is for a people to be predisposed and says, I'll just submit myself to the Lord. I'll read this book, I'll consider it study, and I'll consider for just a few moments how I can submit myself to the Lord so that he may use me. I will take the commandments of Jesus Christ seriously and incorporate those in my life because he has changed my life. He's brought me from death into life. And therefore, I willingly submit, for he deserves to be served.